Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 3, Episode 10, School Wars. There's a quotation usually attributed to Columbia University professor Wallace Sayer, although I've also seen it credited to Noam Chomsky, that says, quote, politics and academia are so bitter because so little is at stake. This quotation conjures images of out-of-touch old professors fiercely debating the number of angels that can dance on the head of a pin, and speaking as an academic, there is some degree of truth to this stereotype. But, and I fully acknowledge my bias here, I do think the field of education may be a bit of an exception, at least insofar as those times when what we research here from the ivory tower actually does impact the rank-and-file teaching and learning of millions of real students across the country. Schools and policymakers are, of course, under no obligation to listen to anything we education eggheads come up with, and also recall that since we have no singular top-down authority on teaching methodology in the United States, even when they do listen to us, the power they have to act on our recommendations is in many ways limited. Nevertheless, there have been some times when conflicts over educational best practices really have rocked the nation's schools, and I thought I'd take this episode to detail two such times in particular the so-called math wars, and the so-called history wars. I picked those two because I think they offer a good illustration of the two main types of ideological conflicts that happen behind the scenes in the world of education. The math wars were about pedagogy, or how something is taught, while the history wars were about content, or what the thing is that students will be taught. I'm speaking in the past tense, but in many ways, both of these conflicts remain ongoing. While some of what you're about to hear in this episode may seem to you like inside baseball, I think it is important to recognize that behind the scenes of every textbook a student opens or worksheet that a teacher passes out, sometimes there lies a hidden conflagration between people that students, teachers, and parents never even hear of, even though these education wars are ostensibly being fought on their behalf. So without further ado, let's start with the math wars. And I think I need the proper musical intro here. Hold on. It is a time of great chaos and concern, the 1980s, where, if you may recall from previous episodes of this podcast, especially Season 1, Episode 3, politicians and educators alike are trying to respond to the apparent crisis in public education popularized in the Department of Education report A Nation at Risk, which painted a picture of a failed system of public schools, students graduating after 12 years unable to write, draw inferences, or, salient to this episode, effectively employ mathematics. Over the course of the decade, it seemed nearly everyone with some stake in public education was proposing their own suggested reforms and solutions, and one of the heaviest hitters in this free-for-all, at least where math was concerned, was the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, or NCTM. The NCTM has been around since 1920, and it doesn't conduct its own research, per se. It does, however, publish no less than five separate journals, which feature and respond to the research of others. And the recommendations that the NCTM makes, and it makes many, are taken very seriously in public education. For example, during the Second World War, the NCTM popularized the vital role mathematics played in the war effort, and really got schools to adopt the teaching of algebra at the elementary school level which until then they hadn't been doing. The NCTM also pushed for schools to go beyond skill and drill to really help students understand the concepts behind what they were learning in their math classes. 
Prior to the 1980s, the NCTM's most famous contribution to public education was probably the publication of the curriculum called Modern Mathematics, usually referred to by its catchier moniker, The New Math. NCTM promoted The New Math as a solution to the big problem of the 1960s, which was how math education could produce a generation of American scientists and engineers who could compete with the Soviet Union, America's Cold War enemy who had just embarrassed the heck out of the U.S. by launching Sputnik. In order to really innovate, the NCTM argued, students had to learn math in complex and holistic ways. Instead of just memorizing formulas or going through rote exercises, they should instead be learning through inquiry and discovery. Longtime listeners to this podcast may find this idea somewhat familiar. One of the ongoing foci of this podcast is the tension over the ages between educators like Comenius, Pestalozzi, Montessori, Parker, Peabody, Vygotsky, Dewey who understood learning as the process of students constructing knowledge through experiences and interactions, and the general educational establishment, insofar as there was such a thing, who promoted rote memorization and repetition as the means to learn something new. These methods are not mutually exclusive, of course. You can learn, for example, Newton's laws of motion through observing the behavior of objects as you throw them, rather than just being told those laws. That's how Newton himself learned it, after all. But you can also then memorize the formula of force equals mass times acceleration, and practice the heck out of solving problems with it until you can do it in your sleep. Or, to take it out of the realm of math for a moment, if you know how to drive a car, how did you learn? I don't know you, but I'm willing to bet a sizable chunk of money that it wasn't by reading that little instruction booklet the Registry of Motor Vehicles gave you in driver's ed class. You learn to drive, I imagine, from actually driving getting an organic sense through your experiences of just how fast you needed to go to pass a car on the highway, just how much distance you needed to get from the car you passed in order to come back into the lane, just how close or far away an oncoming car needs to be in order to make the decision to take a left turn in front of it, etc. Then, of course, you had to practice all of this in order to really get good. Skill and drill has a role in driving. I mean, think about it. You have to memorize those hand signals for turning, because if you don't, you might run over that next bicyclist who's crossing in front of you. Learning through experience and through top-down instruction and repetition can, and I'd argue, should go hand-in-hand. In keeping with the NCTM's philosophy, the new math emphasized the importance of learning concepts in context for those hand signals, as it were, or in this case, for mathematical operations. For example, students would learn the commutative property as they were learning basic arithmetic, so they would understand why changing around the order of numbers didn't change your answer when adding or multiplying, 2 plus 4 is the same as 4 plus 2, and so forth. The new math's approach garnered fans among many famous scientists, including physicist Richard Feynman, who wrote, quote, In the new mathematics, then, first there must be freedom of thought. Second, we do not want to teach just words. And third, subjects should not be introduced without explaining the purpose or reason, or without giving any way in which the material could really be used to discover something interesting, end quote. But the new math was, shall we say, not quite as well received among most audiences. Its most vocal critic in academic circles was probably New York University professor Morris Klein, whose book title, Johnny Can't Add, The Failure of the New Math, pretty much sums up his concerns. Students pursuing the new math approach, he and other critics argued, were being given the big picture of math without actually learning the foundational skills they needed to really use it. He wrote, quote, Abstraction is not the first stage, but the last stage in a mathematical development, unquote. But the most famous and memorable critique of the new math probably came not from any mathematician or public academic, but rather from folk singer Tom Lehrer, whose song, The New Math, 
mock the practice in a way that general audiences could appreciate. Now instead of four in the tens place, you've got three because you added one, that is to say ten to the two, but you can't take seven from three, so you look in the hundreds place. From the three, you then use one to make ten ones, and you know why four plus minus one plus ten is fourteen minus one, because addition is commutative, right? And so you got thirteen tens, and you take away seven, and that leaves five. Well, six, actually, but... <laughs> The idea is the important thing. <laughs> Hooray for new math, new math. It won't do you a bit of good to read new math. Okay, actually, I lied. Tom Lehrer was not only a folk singer, but also a mathematician. He actually graduated from Harvard magna cum laude with a degree in mathematics. But anyway, in the wake of the backlash, many schools eventually returned to more traditional math instruction, even as others doubled down on the new math. And as it persisted, so too did the mockery. As recently as 2018, the second Incredibles movie took a swing at it. That's not the way you're supposed to do it, Dad. They want us to do it. I don't way. know that way. Why would they change math? Uh, math is math. Okay, math Dad. is math. I'll just wait for Mom to get back. Math may be math, but 1983's A Nation at Risk report demonstrated that whatever schools were doing with it, it apparently wasn't resulting in student mastery, and so the NCTM took another crack at promoting more constructivist learning. In 1989, they published a book with a gripping title, Curriculum and Evaluation Standards for School Mathematics, which in many ways was a reworking of the new math for contemporary audiences. Once again, NCTM emphasized students developing mathematical understandings through teacher-guided experimentation, rather than just being told to solve an equation a certain way because that's how you do it. While the original new math, wow, that's a weird phrase, arose in the context of the need to develop ingenious out-of-the-box inventors for the Cold War, this new new math, if you're curious it wound up being called Core Plus, contains an ethos of making math relevant for marginalized and underserved student populations. The very students that a nation at risk's studies demonstrated were performing most poorly on math assessments. Again, as described in Season 1, Episode 3, the big takeaway from a nation at risk for many was that school inequities were to blame for the disproportionately poor performance of BIPOC students and socioeconomically disadvantaged students in general, and where math was concerned, female students pretty much across the board. Core Plus was designed with an emphasis on applying math in everyday life, rather than in abstract problems written on a chalkboard. Students would learn math better, the NCTM argued, if they were applying it to bus routes in their neighborhood or trips to the local market. The name of the big Core Plus textbook that emerged was even called Math in Context, and it got a lot of federal funding for its development, promotion, and distribution. Starting with California, many states adopted it almost wholesale of the eventual development of the state standards that emerged from the mandates of 2001's No Child Left Behind Act. The California Mathematics Council, an affiliate of the NCTM, was one of the first on the bandwagon, advocating that schools teach what came to be called 21st century skills that were prized by high-tech companies and other employers. And that included the ability to apply complex math and mathematical reasoning in general to real-world situations. But just like in the 1960s, there was a backlash. Despite three large and rigorous studies by the National Science Foundation, as well as one from Johns Hopkins and a few other studies from less recognizable sources, all of which attested to students' success with this new approach, the late 1990s and 2000s were the beginning of the information age, which, as we all know too well, tends to amplify outlying cases that are shocking and provocative, regardless of their accuracy 
which is exactly what happened with what became known as the Andover Controversy. Andover High School was the public school in affluent Bloomfield Township in the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. So affluent, in fact, that in 2014 it was ranked as the number one most expensive community in the state to live in. Andover High School's graduation and college acceptance rates hovered around 98 and 97% respectively. In short, this was as high-powered as communities got, and such communities, as I know very well from working for two decades in one, are very, very concerned, to put it mildly, about college admissions and performance. So in a 1997 survey of Andover High School graduates reported that 96% of respondents were placed in, quote, remedial math, unquote, upon enrollment in college, the nascent internet exploded with fingers of blame pointing at Core Plus for not teaching them the fundamentals. Greg Bacellis, a professor at Wayne State University, collaborated with Professor James Milgram of Stanford to publish and disseminate the results of the survey. Yet, for all of its influence at the time, I cannot today find a copy of the original survey online anywhere. It's been scrubbed from the professor's websites. And while I've found a ton of secondary sources citing it, it appears they all just linked back to that deleted original. So if you can find it, listeners, please let me know. In lieu of that, I have to rely on secondary sources, which claim that the survey is entirely based off self-reports. That is, in fact, what a survey is, and does not confirm those self-reports with any actual enrollment or grading data from any of the colleges attesting to math placement. Enrollment data from the University of Michigan Registrar, at any rate, does not support these claims, but, but that's obviously not exhaustive. Remember, though, that from a research mindset, the burden of proof lies on the researchers making the claim. Also, remember, because the survey is a sample of self-selected respondents who are graduates from a single, not very diverse, socioeconomically outlying high school, that really limits the generalizability of the study. Populations need to be representative for research to yield any widely applicable conclusions. But nevertheless, this study was so widely touted as proof that Core Plus had somehow failed that it sparked other studies, including an open letter to the then U.S. Secretary of Education, Richard Riley, signed by five mathematics professors and endorsed by about 75 others, requesting the U.S. government withdraw its endorsements of Core Plus programs. And one of the studies they cite is Bacellus and Milgram's. They also cite some other studies, and here even I'm not willing to get too much farther into the reads, but let's just say that for every study, proponents of core math found something to criticize. Sample sizes were too small. Data was cherry-picked. The study was only looking at an early draft of Core Plus, or they weren't factoring for teachers' use of supplementary materials. While opponents would in turn come back with yet another study, some school districts and even some states decided to abandon Core Plus, while others doubled down on it because, hey, this is America, and local control allows each state and sometimes each community to build its own little microcosm. In 2008, the National Mathematics Advisory Panel whose members included Harvard University, the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, and the U.S. Department of Education, attempted to step into these raging math wars and mediate. In a Solomonian move, they advised that, quote, all-encompassing recommendations that instruction should be entirely student-centered or teacher-directed are not supported by research, unquote. In other words, they declared, there is no right answer, you're both kind of right, now combine your methods and just get along. Except, as you might expect, that answer pleased absolutely no one. Constructivist Core Plus math advocates felt the panel wasn't giving full consideration to the many ways in which math can be taught with inquiry-based student-centered methods, criticizing, quote, its trivialized definition, unquote, of their philosophy as some sort of pedagogical free-for-all, which wasn't accurate. 
And the traditionalists, they groused that the panel's review wasn't comprehensive enough, included too few studies, was insufficiently populated with mathematical experts, and so on. So at this point, you might well be saying, oh my god, who the heck cares? Why all this time and energy spent on establishing the definitive way that math should be taught? Well, one answer is because debates in education are seldom just about what they seem to be about. As America grew increasingly polarized around political lines in the late 90s and 2000s, the mathematics classroom became yet another arena, however bizarre, in which this polarization played out. To political and social conservatives, Core Plus and its new math ilk were just code for a subversively multiculturalist, globalist agenda. Conservative personages like Lynn Cheney, Chester Finn, Rush Limbaugh, Phyllis Schafly, and Thomas Sowell all spoke out against Core Plus. West Virginia Senator and former Ku Klux Klan organizer Robert Byrd made a rambling speech on the Senate floor on June 9, 1997, where he mocked a Core Plus textbook as so-called rainforest algebra, a dig at the liberal environmentalist movement, and decried what he called its, quote, razzle-dazzle confusing stuff that was full of, quote, helpful comments and photos of children named Taktuk, Esteban, and Min. I still don't quite grasp the necessity for political correctness in an algebra textbook, end quote. He was furious that the textbook included, quote, lectures on endangered species, a discussion of air pollution, facts about the Dogon people of West Africa, chili recipes, and a discussion of varieties of hot peppers, end quote. On the other end of the political spectrum, progressive firebrand educator Alfie Cohn accused defenders of traditional math instruction as, quote, just reflecting the fear that more sophisticated math instruction might be less useful for boosting SAT scores and therefore for getting students into the most elite colleges, unquote. To Cohn and other liberals, tra traditional math was code for keeping math instruction behind locked, gated communities as one more property of the elite white Protestant ruling class who favored instructional models that were built to serve them and resisted democratizing education to be more inclusive of methods and contexts that could speak to a wider cultural and socioeconomic swath of students. To many conservatives, Core Plus was an example of yet another liberal socialist plan to weaken what made America great in the name of serving a globalist multiculturalist agenda. I'm not so certain they disagreed with the fundamental premise that math should be applied to real-life contexts. It seems to me like they were getting caught up in some of the specific contexts that those textbooks were referencing, but they wanted to genocide the whole baby with the bathwater nonetheless. Similarly, liberals seem to read insistence on traditional math instruction as just one more reactionary attempt to retreat into a more exclusionary past, cutting off marginalized students' progress at the knees to preserve the establishment's power. And in doing so, they seemed to feel they had to reject anything they felt connoted that idea, including essential elements of memorization and practice that were not only integral to mastering math concepts, but weren't mutually exclusive with it. Again, what stuns me about the math wars in general is the ridiculous either-or position that somehow student inquiry and rote memorization and repetition can't function to mutually reinforce one another. I mean, I'm admittedly not a mathematician myself, but I would call that combination good teaching. I think that's what the Mathematics Advisory Panel was ultimately trying to say. So what's the current state of the math wars? Well, No Child Left Behind and the emphasis on passing narrowly defined standardized tests swung the pendulum back toward traditional methods in the 2000s and 2010s, because according to those dominant metrics, those methods were successful. Data from the 2015 Trends in International Mathematics and Science Study, or TIMS, revealed that U.S. fourth graders' average math scores increased overall from 1995 to 2015, going from 518 to 539 points. Meanwhile, average math scores for U.S. eighth graders increased from 492 points in 1995 
to 518 points in 2015. Even the more modest National Assessment of Educational Progress in Math Assessments, or NAEP, reported that average math scale scores for students in grades 4 and 8 improved almost every year between 2000 and 2013, and that 12th grader scores hadn't fallen since 2009. More than one researcher has suggested that these tests reward math teachers, administrators, and policymakers for privileging strategies for short-term success on tests, memorizing and employing certain formula or techniques, rather than strategies for teaching more long-term, comprehensive knowledge. If the traditional methods most math teachers are using seem to be working, and that they achieve the results needed on the necessary schedule, does that mean the math wars have been decisively won by the traditionalists? Well, maybe, but maybe not. Despite gains in domestic standardized test scores, American students don't perform comparatively as well on the Program for International Student Assessment, or PISA, developed by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, a triannual international assessment of over 500,000 students from 72 countries. In 2015, the same year that TIMS and NAEP reported on those tremendous gains in domestic standardized tests, the U.S. wound up placing 38th out of 71 countries in math and 24th in science. Not exactly a standing to brag about. What's so different about the PISA exam? Well, it challenges students to apply math concepts to real-world situations as opposed to abstract, isolated problem sets. Students must be able to, quote, formulate situations mathematically, employ mathematical concepts, facts, procedures, and reasoning, and interpret, apply, and evaluate mathematical outcomes. And according to a great many studies, including a 2012 RAND Corporation study, only a minority, the RAND study says 3 to 10 percent, of elementary and middle school students in the U.S. are administered tests that really assess deeper and more complex learning in math. OECD's PISA tests look for just such learning, and the teaching strategies that correlate with that kind of learning, according to their own research, are what they call cognitive activation instruction. In other words, quote, students should be allowed to think of solutions to practical problems themselves before the teacher shows them how they are solved, unquote, and, quote, thinking and reasoning processes are more important than specific curriculum content, unquote. Apparently, there were positive associations between these cognitive activation instruction methods and mean mathematics performance in every country that participated in PISA, except Albania. So come on, Albania, what's up with you? Now, the OECD report isn't a blanket endorsement of all student-centered approaches. Students who reported that they'd been essentially put in cooperative groups and told to figure out math concepts on their own with minimal to no teacher intervention perform pretty much at the bottom of the pack. But the fact remains that given the substantial evidence that a lot of these inquiry-based approaches really do promote higher-level math learning, then American math teachers may find themselves in a dilemma, even beyond the way that math instruction has become so politicized. From a brutally practical point of view, the very strategies that prepare students well for standardized tests of lower-order math skills, upon which their graduation and their teachers' jobs depend, might be counterindicated for learning math at deep and complex levels. But again, and I'll say it one more time, I don't think it's an either-or. Okay, enough about math and how learning about numbers and equations got overly politicized. Let's move on to a subject that by its nature can't help but become politicized the teaching of history and social studies. To really appreciate the context here, we need to remember, as I described way back in the very first episode of this podcast, that for most of American public education's lifetime, there has been next to no uniformity among what schools teach, especially when it comes to teaching history and social studies, where schools were empowered to really tailor this curriculum to what mattered locally and filter it through local biases. 
the emphasis on the Battle of the Alamo in Texas schools versus the emphasis on the Battle of Bunker Hill in Massachusetts, or how north of the Mason-Dixon line you might learn about something called the Civil War, while in the southern part of our country you might learn about that same conflict under the name the War Between the States, or even frequently the War of Northern Aggression. As a kid growing up in Massachusetts, I learned plenty about the horrors of segregation in the South in my history classes, absent any mention whatsoever of how the northern textile economy was dependent upon southern slave labor, or anything whatsoever of the busing riots in Boston during attempts at school desegregation there in the 1970s. The No Child Left Behind Act did lead to the imposition of state standards in history as well as all the other subjects, but the lion's share of emphasis in most states lies on English and math. My own state of Massachusetts doesn't even have a state test in history, thanks to the pitched battle over just what would be on it. The decision of what events and figures to cover and what to leave out inevitably carried political weight. And in the end, what resolved the argument were testing budget shortfalls that made the whole question moot, and a lot of people breathed a sigh of relief. Despite all the hubbub you hear about this or that book in an English class causing controversy or being banned, ultimately, in many people's minds, fiction and poetry aren't about real things, and even narrative nonfiction and memoir lie safely rooted in individual experience. But on the other hand, the politics of how history and whose history gets taught in public schools, well, that tends to make front page news. That's what happened a 10-minute walk from Leslie's campus at nearby Cambridge Ridge and Latin High School where the Black Student Union posted an expose video on YouTube several years ago that went viral, including the following testimony from an African-American student. Quote, One day, people came to my class to present about Black History Month, and there was a debate about whether there should be a White History Month. And we started talking about it, and one of the white students said, well, Black history would be more important if it was actual history. End quote. That right there is the crux of the issue. What gets the official stamp of actual history and what gets relegated to so-and-so appreciation months, or even dropped out entirely? History textbooks traditionally constitute about 75 to 90 percent of classroom instruction in schools, and they paint a very particular picture of, say, American history. Just sticking with the issue of race, Donald Iacovone from Harvard University's Hutchins Center examined nearly 3,000 U.S. history textbooks from the 1800s to the 1980s, and he found that, quote, across time and with precious few exceptions, African Americans appeared only as a problem, only as ignorant Negroes, as slaves, and as anonymous abstractions that only posed problems for the real subject of this written history, white people of European descent, end quote. Even more contemporary textbooks can suffer from these defects. Take, for example, a McGraw-Hill World Geography textbook from 2015, with over 140,000 copies in use that framed the Atlantic slave trade in such seemingly innocuous terms as bringing, quote, millions of workers from Africa to the southern states to work on agricultural plantations, end quote, as a part of a larger chapter on immigration. To be fair, McGraw-Hill eventually reissued the textbook with somewhat more accurate language. The so-called history wars, contemporaneous with the math wars, and just as ongoing, involve various attempts by teachers to present alternate, more diverse framings of U.S. history, particularly focusing on the experiences and struggles of Americans of color. And these, in turn, have faced organized resistance from many white parents and lawmakers. In 2010, for example, Arizona passed a law banning the teaching of, quote, ethnic studies, unquote, on the grounds that it, quote, advocated ethnic solidarity instead of being individuals, end quote, and was, quote, designed for a certain ethnicity, unquote, as if a white European-centered focus was not also designed for a certain ethnicity? Anyway, a federal judge struck down the ban seven years later. 
Texas, South Carolina, and Oklahoma were among the states in which legislators battled over the content and framing of school history standards, and in Oklahoma, this escalated to a state representative introducing a bill to ban the teaching of advanced placement U.S. history in general because it put too much emphasis, quote, on what is bad about America, unquote, and did not include enough about, quote, American exceptionalism, unquote. And that's pretty much the history of words in a nutshell. Once again, we get this kind of weird false dichotomy, an either-or battle line, where on one side stand those who want to present a unifying narrative among the many diverse strands of American history. Arizona Superintendent Tom Horn captures this view succinctly in his public defense of the ethnic studies ban, quote, the function of the public schools is to bring in kids from different backgrounds and teach them to treat each other as individuals, and the Tucson District's ethnic studies program is doing the opposite. They're teaching them to emphasize ethnic solidarity, and I think that's exactly the wrong thing to do in public schools." Unquote. From this perspective, history and social studies classes have a duty to assimilate narratives under a single story for the sake of national unity and identity, a story that just happens to be very white and European-centered. And on the other side, you've got those who argue that the promulgation of a singular narrative, typically one that is overwhelmingly white and European-centered, leads many students, and this is according to the National Education Association's analysis of 30 years of research, to, quote, disengage from academic learning. Ethnic studies curricula exist in part because students of color have demanded an education that is relevant, meaningful, and affirming of their identities, unquote. Again, I'm going to make the case here against what I see as a false dilemma or at the very least an unproductive one. Weighing the merits and flaws of possessing a command of quote traditional versus quote alternate or ethnic narratives of history is not necessarily a useful way of framing the question of how to engage students in learning history and social studies. Constructing a traditional white Eurocentric versus alternate ethnic binary misses much of what I see as the real value that social studies and history classes can provide to students, an analytical framework for looking at how we construct history. As culture journalist Jacoba Urist put it, quote, the media and lawmakers often reduce this to two poles, a liberal left that pursues an overly negative interpretation of U.S. history versus a conservative right that just wants students to memorize a list of names and facts and smudge out the ugly parts, end quote. She feels that the real issue is, quote, currently most students learn history as a set narrative, a process that reinforces the mistaken idea that the past can be synthesized into a single standardized chronicle. But history is a collection of historians exchanging different and often conflicting analyses. And rather than vainly seeking to transcend the inevitable clash of memories, American students would be better served by descending into the bog of conflict and learning the many histories that compose the American national story. End quote. Eurist concludes that students should be taught history not as a single narrative, but as a discipline that is, quote, about explaining and interpreting past events analytically, unquote. Another contributor to The Atlantic, Michael Conway, argues that instead of teaching history, schools should really be teaching historiography, the process by which historians assemble their historical narratives, what they leave in, what they leave out, how they frame events, and what the effects of those framings are. Quote, if students are really to learn and master these analytical tools, then it's absolutely essential that they read a diverse set of historians and learn how brilliant men and women who are scrutinizing the same topic can reach different conclusions. End quote. Whereas James Lowton, author of the book Lies My Teacher Told Me, writes, quote, historiography asks us to scrutinize how a given piece of history came to be written. Who wrote it? When? With whom were they in debate? What were they trying to prove? Who didn't write it? What points of view were omitted? End quote. From these points of view, the aim of history class is to provide students with tools to understand how history gets created and memorialized and interpreted. 
Learning and using these tools to explore and assess a wide variety of historical perspectives gives students the responsibility for defining, critiquing, or defending framings of, quote, actual history, unquote, as opposed to just accepting and memorizing the definitions established by their teachers, be they liberal or conservative. Of course, so long as state history standards are written in such a way that defines learning goals as the memorization of laundry lists of names and dates, and they're pretty much all written that way at present, it is hard to move the conversation past the partisan divide. Whew, so there you have it, 30 minutes summarizing the battles over just two subject areas, math and history, and we didn't even touch the wars over science, English, or heaven help us, health and sex ed. The sheer volume of writing and even legislation that's been expended to fuel these battles can be seen as the sign of a healthy academic debate and critical discourse, but, well, to be honest, I don't often see it that way. I usually see it as a waste, insofar as it loses sight of the bigger picture mission that schools have, or that at least I think they have, to equip students with the skills that they need to make meaning of the world, to go on being lifelong learners long after they've graduated and there's no longer a teacher in the room guiding their process. Rather than arguing over the single best way to teach something, or the single best content to focus on, what I would love to see is a healthy debate about the best way of teaching students to have these debates themselves, and in doing so, get deep into the source code of their own education, such that they can really own it. Bringing that about, in my humble opinion, would be a war worth fighting. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great, then you're in for a treat. Today's fun fact about education. Business Insider ranked American colleges and universities according to their definition of academic rigor, including demands for complex thinking and application of ideas. And MIT, down the street from me, clocked in at number one, with University of Chicago coming in at a close second. Harvard, also down the street from me, only made it to number 25. Time to raise those standards, Harvard. Bye now.